this morning, we get to finish up our Upside Down Kingdom series. If you are a first-time guest, we are in a uh, 21 days of prayer and fasting. Uh, we've been using some little devotional books. Hopefully, you guys have been learning some things through that. Uh, uh, I have really appreciated the, the book. I'm not a big devotional guy, uh, and so I've, I'm glad that I've been uh, gaining some things from it. It's, it's been really good. Um, but today, we get to finish it up. Uh, we're going to be going back to Matthew chapter 6. Um, and I want to tell you about a time when Leanne and I uh, became homeowners. When we moved to Denver, Colorado, we had never owned a home before. We'd only been married, I think, what, three, four years at the time. And so we end up um, moving to Denver, Colorado for me to be the worship director at a small little church plant. And we qualified for a home loan under this uh, program that kind of ended up causing all of the crash in 2008. Anyway, they uh, let us uh, get this home uh, with basically no money to our name. And about a day or two after we move in, we receive a phone call and it's a, a company wanting to come and offer us a free water test. Well, we have a, a little one-year-old kid at the time. Uh, it seems like, you know, as first-time homebuyers, it would be smart for us to know kind of the quality of the water where we're now living. So we say yes. We set a date, and we're expecting someone from, like, maybe the county or, you know, city water department to show up, run this test, and let us know, hey, here are the results. Instead, some guy shows up, and I vaguely remember him doing some sort of test, but really what he, he was there was was to push on us a water-softening system. Now, we were dirt poor. Like, they should not have allowed us to purchase this condo. But we, we have this place. We have no money. This guy's starting to, like, push a loan on us. Like, oh, you know, for monthly installments over the next 36,000 years, you can pay for the system and have good quality water. I felt tricked. I thought someone would come in just to do a water test. And instead, he's there to put on a high-pressure sales to try and get us to spend money we didn't have. Anyone been tricked? Yeah, maybe you uh, had someone that you thought was going to be a friend. You're going out for coffee, and next thing you know, you're being invited into their multi-level marketing scheme. Or, or, or maybe you uh, thought the email really was from a Nigerian prince. I, I think all of us have been tricked one way or another. Hopefully you haven't fallen for the Nigerian prince email. Um, but I think all of us have had someone present themselves one way and then you find out something different or a company says one thing and then you end up with something different. It's really kind of embarrassing for me as a pastor to have to admit that the organization that is really good at this sort of trickery is the church. I I can't tell you how many times I've known of a church or a Christian ministry who has said, Hey, come to this event because this is going to take place. But when you get there, it's sort of that. They didn't lie, but really you're getting something else. Like, for instance, they might say, oh, come to this event. We're going to hear from a former professional football player. So, like, the whole entire football team shows up. You know, all the football fans from town show up. The place is packed. And then the speaker turns out to have been a guy who had, like, played half a season on the practice squad for a team in the Canadian Football League. Like, it just feels like a trick. You know what happens when you feel tricked? You become really, really wary. You, you become kind of skeptical. You kind of pull back from either the individual that invited you or, or the organization that said promised one thing but gave you something else. But not only that, you become wary of anything that even is remotely associated. Like if someone starts acting like that person that you got tricked by, you pull back from even them, even if they're an honest person. 
I've seen people pull away, not just from certain types of church, but even all churches, because some church tried to trick them into being a part. Well, it turns out, it is not just water companies, churches, Nigerian princes that try to trick us. It's even the culture. Our American culture is regularly trying to trick us into what will make us happy. All you have to do is look at the way entertainment is pushed. The, the what is taught about sex or, or maybe certain products. When you buy certain things, then you will be happy. But probably the most pervasive area is money. Our culture tries to tell us that when you get more, more money, more stuff, more house, more recognition, you will have more happiness. This gets put under a title, the American dream. That if you just get the house, if you just get the spouse, if you get the good job, you get the two and a half kids, if you get all this stuff, and then you'll retire at 65, you will have achieved the dream. And all your wildest dreams will be fulfilled. Maybe Pedro from Napoleon Dynamite put together the American dream. I don't know. This is what's taught to us. And yet so many people have chased after the dream and found it to be empty, found it to be lacking, found something to be missing because it's a trick. Now, don't mishear me. There's nothing within the American dream that is evil itself. Like getting a spouse. Good thing. I really like mine. Plan to keep her for a lot longer if I can. Kids, wonderful. I have four. Love them. Right? Getting a job, working hard at it, having a house, that's a blessing. The American dream is not hell masquerading as heaven. What happens is our culture tells us that the American dream, a good thing, is actually the ultimate thing. And when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, now it has become a bad thing. And that is wherein lies the trick. Now, amazingly, Jesus, over 2,000 years ago, addresses the American dream. Because it turns out that the American dream was actually not invented by Americans. The American dream, the desire for more, has been lurking in the hearts of humans throughout all of history. There is something in us that feels incomplete. And so we think, if I just have more stuff, then I will have more happiness. And today, we're going to hear Jesus confront it head on and teach us that more is not more, that in the upside down kingdom, less is more. That when you value the things of earth a little less, you create space for a little more of God. And it's in him, I believe, you will find your greatest joy in this life as well as the next. So if you brought a Bible, I invite you to open it up to Matthew chapter 6, one last time. If you don't have a Bible, <clears throat> excuse me, don't worry about it. We're going to put the scripture up on the screen so you are going to be re- able to read right along with all of us. Um, if you have a Bible on your phone, totally feel free to pull that out. We are fine with digital Bibles. If you're online, you can use that Bible tab just over there on the right side and you can navigate to Matthew chapter 6 as well. As we get ready to read uh, verses 19 through 23 today, let me pray. So Heavenly Father, as we come to your timeless scriptures, 
We so often bring in our own biases, our own desires and emotions. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do what only you can do. You would work beyond those. You would work through those. You would pierce the cloud of of our selfishness, our desires, our biases. And you would help us to hear your heart. Your heart that is for us. Your heart that loves us. And your heart that wants to rescue us from the trick. So God, I pray that you would help us today to be an open book before you. That today would not be about me trying to convince a group of people of a certain way to live. But rather it would be your Holy Spirit calling them to something greater, something that you desire for them. So Lord, would you teach us now through me, through your scriptures, but mostly through your Holy Spirit, do in us what you need to do so that we can become the people you see us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, Matthew six nineteen through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is occurring right in the middle of Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. It's what we've been looking at through those little devotional books through these entire 21 days. Jesus has, we've already seen him talk about prayer here in chapter 6. Last week we saw him talk about fasting, and now he shifts to the topic of money. And right at the very beginning, he confronts this idea that more is more from the very get-go. He tells us, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. All right, so he's, he's, he's coming right at it. He's, he's not pulling punches, not, you know, picking a nice little aside to come in in the back door. He's right there at it. And he says, because there are two things that can destroy these earthly treasures. First, moths. In Jesus's day, clothing was very, very valuable. It, it, they, they couldn't just swing through trinkets and togs and, and pick up a couple shirts for a couple of bucks. You know, they, they, they couldn't go online and order something on coals. Like they had to take the time to build, to make their clothing. And if they did not know how to do it, they would probably have to figure out a way to pay someone to do it. So most people in Jesus's day only owned two, maybe three pieces of clothing, like three changes of clothing. And and, and so when it was time, you know, you wore one for a while, when it was time to wash it, you'd take it off, you'd put on the next set and you'd wash this. And then you'd fold that up after it was dry and you'd put it away. Very, very valuable. So you could imagine how devastating it would be when you realize, yeah, this tunic's getting a little musty. It's probably time to, to wash it. You take it off. You, you're going to wash it. You put on the next set. And as you put it on, suddenly there's a big hole. You see, moths themselves do not eat clothing. However, they lay eggs that hatch larvae. And it's the larvae that would eat it. These tiny little, in a sense, worms that will eat these fibers. So if you're 
trying to store up all this clothing because in their day and age, clothing was you know, a sign of wealth. So if you had all these changes of clothing, look how great I am. Look how wealthy I am. How foolish that this thing that looks so great could be destroyed by nothing but a little worm. To him, it's foolish. Don't do this. Don't store up for yourself these clothing. The second thing he says is rust. Now, I learned this week that the word that gets translated rust is actually the word corrosion, which is why the King James Version translated it rust and most every English version since grabs onto that. However, not that that's wrong. I think that, uh, there's a better way to translate it. And this is going to sound funny. I think it should be translated worms. You see, the word that is translated that, that means corrosion can also mean eaten. And if we were to keep all of the Sermon on the Mount in context, in a few verses, we would see Jesus talk about food and clothing. Wait, he's going to say, so don't worry about where your food or clothing comes from. Because if God can feed the birds of the air and, and, and you know, clothe the, the flowers of the field, he'll take care of you. Well, if he's talking about food and clothing there, to me, it makes sense that he might still be talking about food and clothing right here. And it isn't that your food would rust, but it might get eaten. And not just eaten by you, it could be eaten by worms, some devouring insects. I think this is what he's going at. I don't think he's talking about rusting metal. I think he's talking about how in their day and age, they didn't have refrigerators to keep their food safe. They couldn't just throw something in the freezer and pull it out to thaw for the day. Like they were almost hand to mouth every day. And so could you imagine how devastating it would be to go to your little pantry to pull out some food and now suddenly you find worms all throughout it. What what are you going to do? Because you can't just run to the grocery store to get something else. But man, because food's so valuable... People come in and see the spread you put out. It makes you look wealthy. You start thinking like, man, I matter. I'm great. Look how happy I am because I have so much food. Just say, no, 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 no. Don't fall for the trick. Your joy will not be found in your food because it could be eaten by worms. It can corrode. So maybe you think to yourself, okay, so don't put your hopes in clothing. Don't put it in food. It, it needs to be in something that, that's a little more reliable, a little more sustainable, something that doesn't change. I know I'm going to put my hopes and trust in gold, silver, money. Now, that's why Jesus then warns us next. He says, nor where thieves break in and steal. Sometimes when we think of the stealing, we, th- we think only of, you know, like someone breaking in while we're away on vacation or in the middle of the night and taking our valuables. But there's all sorts of ways for the stuff to get stolen. I heard a story years ago of a uh, gentleman who was a very, very wealthy businessman, and he was a regular churchgoer. He was a deacon in his church, if I remember the story correctly. And he had the opportunity to, I think it was like a a devotional before the offering. So he shares this devotional and tells everyone, here's how wealthy I am. He owned several businesses. God had really, you know, given him a lot. And he says that God has blessed me because I'm incredibly generous. and, And he apparently was. He says, and I'm also incredibly kind to people. So the idea of the lesson was, if you want to be able to give generously, go ahead and start now small and be kind to other people. Okay, that, that's a nice message. That, that's fine. However, in the stock market crash of 2008, this man lost almost everything. Ended up having to close a couple of his businesses on the verge of bankruptcy. 
And that told the guy in his heart that because he was no longer wealthy, God had no longer blessed him. And so therefore, God must not really love him. And it actually led to this guy losing his faith. In other words, he actually said, yeah, I worship God, but in a sense, his trust was in his money. And when the stock market crashed and all of it was stolen, his joy was gone, as well as his faith. You see, you could have someone break into your house and steal something, but you could have online hackers also come in and steal something. Jesus is saying, don't put your hopes and trust in these things of this earth, because all of it changes. Instead, Jesus begins to teach a different investment scheme. Rather than invest in the things of this earth to store them up to try to get more, he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. I want you to realize, let's just say that moms don't eat your clothes. Like your clothes last forever. Uh, Let's even say that your food always seems to last. It's always there. It's in abundance. Let's even say that the stock market never crashes on you. You have all sorts of money. Let's even say that you die wealthy. You can't take any of it with you. As day 14 in our devotional said, the writer quoted his pastor, says you'll never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. So even if it's not stolen by moths or worms or thieves, it'll eventually get stolen by time. That's why Jesus says, I have a different investment plan for you. Don't just invest in the things of this earth. Lay up treasures in heaven. So now we have to ask ourselves, well, how do you do that? How do you lay up treasures in heaven? Like when you get your paycheck, do you write deposit in heaven? Uh, You know, like do you get cash and you burn it like incense and you pray, oh Lord, please deposit this in my account? You know, like, do you have to figure out some way to build a portal and and throw your stuff through? Like, God, I hear there's, you know, streets of gold in heaven. So here's a car I'm going to need later. So, you know, keep this in storage for me. Well, first of all, it's foolish to think that anything we have of this earth would be of value there. I, I think I've told this joke before, so forgive me if this is a repeat for you. But there is a joke about a wealthy man who has a very close relationship with God. And one night God appears to him and says, you're going to pass away in 24 hours. And I'm telling you so that you can get all of your affairs in order. And because the guy has a close relationship with God, he says, Lord, thank you so much for, for basically the heads up. But I have one request. God's like, man, I love you. What, what do you want? He says, would you let me bring one thing with me? God's like, no, that, that's not the deal. He goes, Lord, please, after all these years of me serving you, all that you've given me, would you please just let me bring one thing? God says, you know what? Sure, I'll let you bring one suitcase. So all day long, as the guy's getting his affairs in order, he's trying to think, what could I bring? And then he has an idea. I'm not going to bring something to heaven that's just for me. I'm going to actually bring something for God. I'm going to give him one last thing in an act of worship. So what can I do? What can I give? And then it dawns on him. I'm going to give God the most precious thing. I'm going to give him gold. So he packs this suitcase full of gold bars, closes it up, and that night as he's asleep, he passes away and he wakes up and he's standing in front of the gates of heaven with a heavy suitcase in his right hand. And as all these jokes always go, there's St. Peter at the gates, welcomes him, and then sees the bag and goes, whoa, dude, no, you, you can't bring that. And the wealthy man says, oh no, you don't understand. God and I worked out a deal. He said I could. 
And, and Peter goes over to the book of life and finds a little asterisk next to, next to the guy's name. And sure enough, there's a note. He allowed one carry on. So Peter's curious, like, well, what'd you bring? He goes, man, I brought one last thing to give to God, like to worship him. And Peter's impressed. Peter's like, man, I got to take a look at this. So they hoist the thing up on a table, opens it up. And the wealthy man is expecting Peter's face to just light up and go, whoa. But instead, Peter looks at the stuff and gets this really confused look. Looks over at the rich man and says, you brought paving stones? Like the greatest thing of our world is nothing but like concrete in heaven. Like your million bucks here isn't even worth a penny there. Like the greatest things that you could possibly store up here is worthless in the afterlife. So Jesus is not saying we got to figure out a way to transfer it from this life to the next. He's clearly talking about something else. So again, we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to lay up treasures in heaven? I think the rest of the passage gives us the clues to what Christ means. Join me at verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, I don't know about you, but to me, this feels like a really strange pivot. Jesus goes from talking about treasure on earth and in heaven to suddenly talking about eyes and light. And it almost sounds like Jesus quite doesn't understand how human biology works. Because we all know that light does not go into the eye and fill the whole entire body. You know, it hits the back of the retina and, you know, the little, you know, well, optic nerves. Clearly, I'm not a biology major. You know, take it back to the brain. Hey, okay, reminder. Jesus is God the Son. He was there in the beginning when he created humans. He knows how the human body works. He designed it. So clearly something else is going on. Well, just as Jesus' parables sound like a story on the surface in one way, but there's this deeper meaning, same here. On the surface, this just sounds like eyes and light. Underneath, there's a far deeper meaning. Is uh, Jaquetta trying to give me a... Uh, uh, for those of you online, Jaquetta's uh, uh, pacifier just came rolling up to me. It might be a clue for me to stop talking. Um, <laughs> sorry, Jaquetta, I'm going to keep going. Um, where, where were we? Sorry. Uh, okay, eyes, bad. All right, what I want to do is I want to take you to the very center word of this. Okay, look at the word bad. It says there, but if your eye is bad. What I learned this week is that in the Greek, the word bad is the same word in Greek as used back in the Lord's Prayer when Jesus says, deliver us from evil. The word is evil. So when your eye is evil, well, we know eyes can't be evil. What he means is that when you are giving your eye, giving your attention to that which is evil, that which is a not of God, that which is sinful, that which is selfish, you're looking at things that are not allowing you to see the light and goodness and glory of God. But this also means the inverse is true. That when your eye is looking upon the things of heaven, as it says in Colossians 3, 1, set your heart not on things of earth, but on things above. When you're putting your attention on God and his gospel, on his way, his heart, his love, his grace. Now you begin to see him for who he is and the things of this earth begin to fade in their importance. But this is where the trick comes in. 
the culture tries to tell you that that which is light, that, that's actually dark. But the things of this earth, which are actually darkness, it tries to tell us that is the light. That's where your joy will be found. But that's why Jesus warns us there at the end of verse 23. He says, but if, uh, um, that, uh, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? That's what our culture is trying to do. Saying, this is light. When it's actually dark. C.S. Lewis ends up uh, addressing this as he's talking about desires. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Here is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount offering us treasure in heaven, light for our eyes, inviting us into the goodness of God. And yet we are half-hearted creatures who are far too content to just play in the darkness. We, we, we are sitting there playing with our mud pies of earthly treasures, thinking this is great. And Jesus is saying, that is so worthless compared to what you get in heaven. And he's inviting us to set it aside, to not fall for the trick, and to come in that which is better. That's why he then shifts back to talking about money in verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. My sophomore year of uh, high school, I was in Spanish 2. And uh, my teacher seating chart put me in the back of the room, right on the edge. We had these big, long tables. And right on the edge... And I'm sitting next to this gal who's sitting next to a friend. And every day in Spanish too, I had to listen to these two talk. It was quite distracting. Maybe that's why I don't know Spanish very well. One day, the girl sitting right next to me is sharing and confessing that she is dating two guys. And she's wanting advice. Because she actually cares and loves both of these guys. She doesn't want to break up with either of them. But she's afraid that if either of them were to find out that she's dating both of them, they might break up with her or what she fears even more is that they would get into a fight and she fears what would happen in that case. And so she's wanting advice on what to do because she's coming to the realization she cannot keep dating two guys simultaneously ongoing forever. Some people are like my Spanish classmate. They try to both date God and money or more likely they try to both serve God and money. And Jesus is saying, you can't. You can try, but eventually something's going to give. Something's going to break. You're going to gravitate to one or the other. And because we live in a culture that is constantly telling us more is more. Get more. Go for it. Oftentimes that's where we end up finding ourselves gravitate toward. Because remember what Jesus said just prior. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if you treasure money, the things of this earth, yeah, you'll say, I, I treasure God. But eventually you're going to gravitate over. And so if you suddenly were to lose your money, you might suddenly lose your faith. Or if you treasure your comfort, 
That's what you yearn for. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I love God, but everything seems to be working towards just getting comfortable. But if you treasure God, your eye is on his goodness, his glory, his grace. Then the things of this earth will fade in their importance. And you'll begin to see them for what they really are. That your spouse is not your savior to rescue you from your own loneliness. Your spouse is a gift from God for someone for you to love and to serve. That your children are not there to make you look really, really good and really, really smart. Your children are there for you to love and to serve and to lead and to show them how to live this life. Your job is not the place where you can go in and show how powerful or how smart or how gifted you are. It's a place for you to come in and serve and show people all that God has given you and how great and glorious he is. It it begins to shift. Instead of finding yourself falling for the trick of the American dream, it all shifts and you begin to see God called you to a greater dream, a God-sized dream. He wants you to give your life completely to him. And then these things are these blessings that you then use to be a blessing to others. So we have to ask ourselves, in light of what Jesus is teaching, what do I treasure? Some of you, you may be realizing, yeah, I I treasure the things of this world. If, If that's bringing a level of conviction, that's the Holy Spirit. And so what you need to do with that is to confess it. But also because I know so many of you, and because I also know me, you're probably a bit like my Spanish classmate. You might realize, yeah, I love God. I mean, I, 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 like he matters so much to me. Like, like in my own life, I, I've left jobs to go and plant a church. I, I've given up so much to do this. And yet... So much of my time and energy and money goes into my own comfort. We end up serving these two masters. And Jesus is trying to rescue us from that. He doesn't want us to get caught in the pinch. He loves us so much. He's inviting us to that which is greater. So what do you treasure? If you're like me, and you're caught between the two, this is an opportunity for you to confess that. But I actually want to encourage you to take it one step further. Yes, I want you to confess, but I want you to even go so far as to ask God, so what should I do? Now, some of you, you're going to have a sense of what God's telling you to do right here and now. Some of you, it may come later. That's okay. I'm going to encourage you to keep praying. But for some of you, God is going to be asking you to make a shift in your thinking. You're going to be continually, daily, even hourly having to surrender some of the things in your life. Because the Holy Spirit's going to say, this has become too important to you. And so what you're going to have to do is learn how to fast it. Set it aside for a time. It's not wrong and evil in and of itself. You just need that reminder. I treasure the things of heaven more. But some of you, the Holy Spirit might even tell you today, or this week or sometime, to give something up. You may need to actually give something away. Maybe you've been so proud of that third car that sits in the stall and gets driven three times a year. Maybe God's asking you to give that away. Maybe you've been setting aside money to do a a remodeling project 
when your house is absolutely fine. And now God is saying, no, I actually want you to give that money to missions. You might have something that you're saying, this matters to me. And Jesus is saying, yeah, but that's the thing of this earth. You're, you're allowing it to take too big of a place in your heart. I want to rescue you from that because it will not bring you the happiness you think it will bring. Yeah, you'll, you'll be happy for a time. But time will steal that happiness away and you'll find yourself right back to a place where you're no longer satisfied. And you'll have to remodel something else or you'll have to go get another car or you'll have to get the newest haircut or the latest fashion, whatever it might be, so you can continue to pursue more happiness. And today Jesus wants to rescue you from that. He doesn't want you falling for the trick. He has something far better, far greater for you. So confess, but then ask him, what do I need to do? So here's what I want to do. I just want to create space. So Salem, if you would just drop the lights, I just want to create some space for us to pray. I'm just going to give you uh, a minute or two uh, of, of just silence and then I'm going to close this out in prayer. And then Jake's going to lead us into our time of communion. Uh, so if the Holy Spirit's been dealing with you, now is your time to talk with him. So Heavenly Father, I just pray right now that your omnipresence would, would, would remind us that you are here. And, and that your omniscience would show that you know what's going on in our hearts. So Father, I pray that you'd open up each and every one of us to you. That right now we would be willing to hear from you. And so God, I pray that you would speak. Most everyone here is not going to hear your audible voice, but I believe that you can still speak in, in, in an invisible whisper. It's an audible, and yet we know. God, for the person that does not hear from you right now, though, I pray you'd help them to hold on, that they would trust you would speak to them, whether it be later this week, later this month, that you would show them where they're giving their attention, where they're putting their eye and it's not on you. So God, I pray right now that you would do what only you can do. It is impossible for me, God, to know what is happening in each and every mind and heart right now. But to you, it is all exposed. So God, we come before you open, transparent, completely naked, asking you to speak to us, to tell us. So God, hear us now as we pray.